0: good morning I'm Joe Collins we are uh, continuing our series Jesus worth following I want to thank the worship team once again for uh, leading us in worship and helping us to connect to Jesus and it is a it really is a blessing that we have so many talented people and uh, I just want to thank them as I do every Sunday and I want to thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning Uh, it is great to be together We uh, at Simi Church have a mission, and that is to love and to live like Jesus. And in order to do that, we've got to become like Jesus. And that's what the preaching is all about. That's why we spend time on Sunday hearing from His Word and examining His life and uh, listening to the voice of God in the course of of that. Today I'm going to be reminding us of a a very important need. And this is the need, uh, a very important need to not forget that people need God. I need God. You need God. Everyone needs God. So there was this uh, married couple, been married a long time, older couple. And uh, they noticed that they were having trouble with their memory. They were forgetting things. And uh, so they went to the doctor to get checked out. and. Uh, the doctor did all the tests and all that kind of stuff, and afterwards, he discovered that uh, there was nothing wrong. So he sat the couple down, he said, listen, there's nothing wrong. We've ran all these tests. You guys are in great health. Don't worry about it. You're totally, totally fine. I just, It just happens. You're getting older. You're an older age, and forgetting things is common when you, when you, when you age. And they said, okay. So they went home, and uh, later that night, they had dinner, and then they were having dessert, and uh, they were sitting in front of the TV, and, and they wanted dessert, I should say, and And um, the wife said, you know, I'd like some ice cream. And uh, she looked at her husband and said, would you get me some ice cream, please? And by the way, write it down so you don't forget. (laughs) So he said, you know, honey, I'm not going to write it down. The kitchen's right next door. I'll just get you a bowl of ice cream. She said, no, but I want vanilla ice cream. Write that down. (laughs) And he said, I'm not going to write it down. You want vanilla ice cream? She goes, yeah, but I want vanilla ice cream with whipped cream on top. Write that down. Doctor said, we're forgetting things. Write it down. He said, no, honey, I'm not going to write it down. I'll remember vanilla ice cream with whipped cream. Well, yeah, but I want a cherry on top. I want vanilla ice cream with whipped cream and a cherry on top. Please write all that out so you don't forget. Honey, it's right next door. I'm just going to go in there. I'll be right back. He leaves, and he's gone for quite a while. And about 30, 40 minutes later, he comes back in, and he has a plate of bacon and eggs. <laughs> and he hands it to his wife. And she looks at it for a minute. She looks up at him, and she says, Where's the toast? so easy to forget things as we get older. It's even easy as Christians to forget that people need God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for this great fellowship that we have. Thank you that we're able to examine your word and let your word be a light to our hearts. Help us to listen to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are in chapter 9 of Mark, verse 14. It says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now, you may remember from last week, if you weren't here, I'll recap. Jesus, uh, they were up in Caesarea Philippi. That was about 40 miles north, if you're looking at our map, of that, uh, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee up there on the top part of our map. They're in this area here where the arrows pointed. And uh, just below Mount Hermon, Jesus had taken uh, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto Mount Hermon. He was transfigured before them. The voice of God spoke, this is my son, listen to him. And then they left that experience, that mountaintop experience, really uh, you know uh, with, with a whole new understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what Messiahship meant and, and all of that. And as they came down They ran into the other disciples, the other nine that were left behind down there, somewhere in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi. And and there, when they approach, they see that the disciples are engaged in an argument. They're arguing with a group of people called the teachers of the law. When you read the Bible, there are these different uh, people that you'll read about, and one of them is the teachers of the law. Them, along with the Pharisees, and another group of people called the scribes, were the gatekeepers of the Jewish faith. It was their job to make sure that any new rabbi or any new person who who uh, claimed to be someone and was and was gathering followers that that person was orthodox, that they were teaching correct uh, uh, theology as they understood it from the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, and that they were in, in con- that they were also teaching in, in, in uh, conjunction with the the teaching the um the tradition of the elders. And that was their job. They were, the, they were those people who they examined. If you were a new guy, they would show up. They would examine you. And then they would pass judgment. They would decide whether you were uh, a good teacher or a bad teacher. And you gotta wonder what are they doing up here, way up in Caesarea Philippi? I mean, they're they're way outside of Galilee. The traditional home of many Jews was Galilee, and in the south was Judea. But way up here in, in Dan and Caesarea Philippi, that place had become was no longer really a Jewish settlement anymore, even though there were small pockets. But it was really Gentile territory. It was it was Greek. It was Hellenized. What were the teachers of the law doing there? Why were they there in the first place? And if you read the Bible. The Gospels, in particular. And if you've been following along in our series, you'll find out that the teachers of the law were shadowing Jesus everywhere he went. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, they seem to be around him an awful lot. And the implication is when we study the passage, when we look in deeper into the, the, the Bible, we find out that they first showed up to examine him and hear what his teaching was and they wanted to hear from him. And then at some point along the way in the past two and a half years, they decided he was a heretic, a false teacher, and he needed to be discredited. And so they purposely followed him around constantly trying to discredit him and find fault and point to any little thing that he did or said that they could attack and, and, and let everyone know that this guy's a bad teacher, don't listen to him. So they were literally shadowing him everywhere he went, following him all over the place, looking for the opportunity to criticize. You know, as Christians, we are being shadowed everywhere we go. Certainly Satan has it in for us, and he. He's got his minions following us around, making sure, looking for any opportunity to trip us up or cause us to falter or cause us to fail. But then there's other people who are critical of the Christian faith or the Christian worldview, and they're watching us, and they want to find us make a mistake. They They want to see us trip up so they can be there to discredit us. But there's other people that are following us around. Our kids. They're watching everything we do. Your parents. Are watching everything you do your friends your co-workers your neighbors people in wherever you go there's witnesses there's people around you that are watching what you do and who you are are you living up to the job are you living up to the title when i was a young man i got my first job kind of real jobs uh you know i worked at somewhere in 10th grade or whatever i got a job at a pool store and uh, back in those days, we had time cards. Remember time cards? And then you'd go to work, and there was a time clock, and you would actually put the time clock into the t- time card, into the time clock, and it would go ka-chunk, and it would stamp the time on your time card. And then when you got off work, you would take your time card, and you'd put it in the time clock at the right spot, and it would go ka-chunk, and it would stamp the time on your time card. And then when you got paid, the employer would just take your time card, and he would add up all the hours you worked, and that's how you got paid. You were paid by the hour. It's called an hourly job. But then I got older and I started learning about this other kind of mystical job, this amazing other job. It was called a salaried job. And I remember thinking, man, I really want a salaried job. Because a salaried job meant that when you got hired, there was an agreed amount of money they would just pay you, and you didn't have to clock in and clock out. You were no longer hourly, you were salaried. You still had to do the work, but you had a little bit more flexibility depending on the job, what you did with your time. You know, Christians are always on the clock. Whether you're hourly or salaried, we're always on the clock. Jesus is always paying attention to what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking, how we're living. We don't clock in and out. We don't get off at five and go home and be someone different. Because people are always watching. Verse 16 What are you arguing about with them, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Jesus, I brought my son who was possessed by a a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So Jesus comes to the situation, sees them arguing, and he wants to know what's going on. What is this all about? And the father of a boy who was suffering severely spoke up. Not the disciples, but the father of a boy. And he said, hey, I came to your disciples, and I I believed that they could help him, and I I asked them to help him, and they, they could not help him. And the implication is that the teachers of the law who were standing right there, always looking for something to to, to criticize, saw that the disciples failed at helping the boy, so they immediately started mocking or criticizing or discrediting them, whatever it was that they were doing. And then that caused the disciples to try to defend themselves and get into an argument with the teachers of the law. And they might have even been arguing with each other. Philip, you're doing it wrong. Judas, that's not what you're supposed to do. Do it this way. And then the teachers of the law, they're going, oh, none of you guys know what you're doing. Jesus isn't, you know, he isn't the son of God. What are you doing? You're falling, heretic. And you could see how this situation got out of hand all at once. And Jesus is upset. I think he's upset for two things. One, he's upset for their lack of faith. We'll see that actually as the story goes on. But I think there's another level in which Jesus is feeling upset over. I think there's another degree in which we can take a step deeper. We can look into this passage and try to feel it, try to live it for a minute. And I think we, what will come out of that is that Jesus was upset also for their lack of compassion. Look at the description of the Father. Whenever it seizes Him, it throws Him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at the teeth, becomes rigid. rigid. This boy was suffering significantly. The father and the family were suffering significantly. And the disciples lost sight of the boy and the father and the real need of what was happening here, the real situation. They lost sight because they got caught up into an argument with the teachers of the law and maybe even with each other. They lacked compassion. I'm going to be frank here. If there is a dark side to being a, to, to a Christian, it's that we sometimes lack compassion. When people need us the most, we can become judgmental. we can become self-righteous. We can distance ourselves from them. I don't want that person around me. And we even do it with each other. I don't like that guy. I don't like how he talked to me, what he said to my kid. I don't like what, how he looked at my wife. I don't like how he behaved at our last get-together, and I want nothing to do with that guy. Or we forget that there's people around us, and we behave foolishly like children. We get immature. We do stupid things. And the compassion drains out of us. And we get to arguing over right and wrong. It's our tendency to lose compassion for people. When I was a young single man, I lived in a household. I was in the church, and I lived in a household with other guys that were going to the church. We had a single guy's household. And we had an opening. We had a room for another roommate. And there was another household in our church of guys... They had a roommate who was looking for a new place to live, and so we was sure he could come and live with us. Now, they failed to tell us that he was unstable and that he was leaving because he pulled the knife on his other roommate. So he moves in with me, and nobody tells me that. Quickly, though, me and another other roommates figured out that he was unstable, and so we, we made the best of it. We just tried to accommodate him in whatever way we could, but he was, he was difficult. And I'll, I'll never forget, there was a time where I came home and we were having some people over and I cleaned up the place and I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to move this chair. We had a, like a chair sofa and, and uh, so we had a couch that faced like I'm facing you and then over here was a chair like this. And I decided that the apartment was small and it might feel bigger if I moved the chair to here. Put it this way. So I did and this roommate came home and he was incensed. <laughs> he was miffed. He was disturbed. Bad attitude the whole day. Later, I met with our minister at the time, and we sat down, and this guy railed against me. I was a bully. I was arrogant. I was selfish, inconsiderate, because I moved a chair. <laughs> now, I sat there, and I looked at the minister like, you're going to say something, buddy? I mean, what? This is completely inappropriate. And the minister rebuked me. How dare you move that chair? I'm like, what? Fortunately, I was still humble as a young Christian. And I didn't get old enough to be unhumble. And uh, I said, okay, look, I'm sorry, whatever. We ended the thing. The guy left. And then I stayed with the minister, and I said, what, what was that? I go, you didn't, I mean, that was ridiculous. He, he said all kinds of negative things about me. How dare you? Why would you let him do that? And he said, look, he goes, you know this guy's got a problem, and you didn't consider him. So I left, you know, and I had to think about that for a whole day. But, you know, eventually I figured it out. Yeah, you know, he's right. I was inconsiderate to that guy. I knew he had problems. We were accommodating him. And I just decided enough was enough, and I could do what I wanted to do. And I didn't think... How it would affect him? Now that's a small thing. I'm not calling it right and wrong, sin black and white. It wasn't that, but but I was inconsiderate. I didn't have compassion on his situation, so I got humble and I I really own that. I felt okay, man. I can do that. And I went to the guy and we apologized. Everything got worked out, and you know we moved on our merry ways and separately. Eventually, you know, we all went separate ways, and and uh, it is what it is. But the point is. I recognize that even in that small way that I failed to have compassion on this person. I didn't think of his needs. I didn't put himself before me. I put myself before him, and that had a, a negative effect. And it would have been easy for me to defend myself and get into another argument and try to explain that away, but I chose not to, thank God. And then I let the Spirit work on my heart, and I, I owned it. I realized, okay, fair enough. We talked about Mission Love last week. We talked about that at Seamy and Shoreline Church, that we want to be a church that is loving. That that is the call of God. That love is our purpose. It is our mission. It is what we want to be about. And in the middle of that sermon, the audience broke out and applauded that statement. That we needed to do a whole mind shift in our, in our church culture and, and focus on love and, and, and let God bring in the growth. And you applauded. We will never accomplish it if we can't figure out to have compassion on other people. We're going to have to become compassionate to people. That is mission love in action. It is love expressed. That's what compassion is. And whether you've been righted or whether you've been wronged, whatever side of the ball you're on, compassion is the standard. Consider others better than yourself. Put others before yourself. That's the way of the cross. That's what Jesus' Messiahship is all about. Laying your life down. Suffering and dying. Not so we die, but so we live. From last week. But we're going to have to figure out how to be compassionate. And let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you a secret. Ready? It starts in this room. If we can't figure out how to be compassionate with each other, we are going to fail mission love. If we can't figure out how to put up with each other's bad habits and bad attitudes and annoying behaviors, we are going to fail at mission love Because the world is full of people with bad habits and bad attitudes and bad life choices. And they're never going to feel welcome if we judge them when they hit the door. And it starts right here in our relationships. That's the experiment of the church. Is there someone you're holding something against is there someone who's got something against you get humble do the compassionate thing reach out to them meet them on the way before they take you to court as James tells us meet them on the road go to them be the one Be the bigger person or be the smaller person, whatever way you want to think about humility. But you go to them and you reach out to them and you make amends with them. And you know what? They may not make amends with you and that's okay. That's a good test for you. It's a good test for me. One thing I want to mention really quickly, and then we'll move on. But if we're going to do this, guys, if we're serious about mission love, and we know that love, compassion is love in action, it's love expressed, if we're going to do that, there's one really important thing that we have to figure out how to do. We have to stop judging others. God judges, and He's allowed to judge because He's perfect. But when we start judging, we really blow it, because as awesome as you are, you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. And it's really easy to tables to turn. And when, that, when that's happening, what we're doing is we're judging and we're not loving. And So I'm calling us as a church to be compassionate towards one another, to put the judgments aside. And let's meet each other where we're at. Let's minister to each other in a way that meets the need. That Jesus can step back and be proud of. When he shows up in your household, you're not there arguing. When he shows up in your life at that moment, when he's there and he's watching, because you're always on the clock, he can be proud of how you handle yourself. We've got to figure out how to be compassionate. Verse 20, So they brought him, the boy, to Jesus. When the spirit saw jesus it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth jesus asked the boy's father how long has he been like this from childhood he answered it is often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him but if you can do anything take pity on us and help us if you can said jesus everything is possible for the one who believes Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. There is a battle between good and evil. Satan is real and Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy me and anything and everything that God has created. And and this story is about a boy who had been, who was being destroyed in his family by Satan. And don't think for a minute that he wouldn't do the same to you given the opportunity So Jesus asked the father, what's, tell me the story. What's been happening here? Now, when you read this, it might seem like Jesus is being insensitive because here's the boy having a trouble, and Jesus starts asking him like, clinical questions, diagnosing what's going on here. And, and at first read, that comes off a bit right. sterile, a bit clinical, a bit even um, in, un, incompassionate. But given what was happening in the first part of the scenario, I think Jesus was actually being extremely compassionate. He was listening to the guy's story the disciples didn't get that far. They got into an argument immediately. And Jesus was letting the dad pour his heart out. And he was listening to the whole thing. How many people would pay double for a doctor that would sit and listen to everything you want to tell them? You have an ache and a pain and you want to describe it and where it is and what it feels like. And you're trying to explain to them and then they cut you off and they go here, take some ibuprofen and they send you home. And you're like, no, listen to me. I think Jesus is listening to this guy. He's showing compassion. He's caring for this father in this troubling time, in this moment. But then the father says something really convicting. He says, if you can do anything. And Jesus is indignant. If you can. When we fail as Christians... To live and to love like Jesus, we cause people to lose faith. The dad came in faith to this boy, with his son, to the disciples. He had heard that they could perform miracles and they could. He had heard that that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of healing and, and, and health. And so he came with faith and asked the disciples to heal his son and they failed. They failed. And then worse yet, they became bad examples and they started fighting about it. And it affected the man's faith. When you don't behave like a Christian, when I don't behave like a Christian, it damages other people. It hurts their faith. I mean, come on. How many times do we see on the news some stupid story of some minister somewhere stealing money or abusing children? And what does it do? It causes everyone to go, oh, religion's horrible. Religion's terrible. It's just like the teachers of the law. They're right there, ready to pounce, ready to criticize, ready to find fault, and it damages people. We need to to not judge one another. We need to figure out how to be compassionate to one another. But that doesn't mean we don't have to be righteous with each other. It doesn't mean that we don't have to live the Christian life. Remember what God the Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration last week. This is my son. Listen to him. We cannot escape that we have to listen to Jesus. That we have to obey Jesus. Jesus, it's part of the equation. Our mission statement is to love and live like Jesus Christ. It's not just about good feelings and everybody's accepted, but then we just let it fall all apart and people go, you know, loosey goosey haywire. No, there is a standard, and the standard is Jesus Christ. We start with love, but we call each other to the standard. And when we fail, there is a cost. Damage does get done to the people who are watching you. Your children, your parents, your neighbor, your brother, your coworker, your fellow students, they're watching. So Jesus is indignant. And he looks at the guy and he goes, If you can. And then he tells him, Everything is possible for one who believes. And I love the dad's response. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Thank you, God, that that's in the Bible. Because we all fail and we all lose faith. And boy, do I, boy, am I encouraged that it just takes a little faith. I just need a little. Jesus can do an awful lot with a little And the father, with what little faith he had, he said, please help me. I I believe. I'm not sure. I don't know what to think. Please, please, please. A little faith goes a long way. You're out with your friends and the temptation to drink too much is there. A little faith can make all the difference. You're out with your girlfriend and the temptation is to go too far. A little faith makes all the difference. You're in a situation with someone that's really ticked you off and really upset you. A little faith makes all the difference. You've blown it and you need to go apologize and you're struggling. A little faith makes all the difference. Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciple asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. So a crowd is coming. The, you know the scene is getting bigger and bigger. Jesus, not wanting this thing to get out of hand, he heals the boy quickly. But you know there's damage here. This poor boy <laughs> looks like a corpse. There's damage, and uh, there's damage in our lives. There's damage in my life from Satan's attacks, from my mistakes, from people wronging me, me wronging others. There's damage there. There's scars. There's wounds. There's damage in your life. Tendencies to be faithless, to be critical, to be insecure, to be uncertain. There's damage there. It would be great if we were all just perfectly awesome. But there's no testimony if we're all perfectly awesome. It's the damage that's our story, it's the damage that's our testimony. It's the damage and the struggle that we have that we can share with other people that gives them just a little faith so that they can make the right choice. I'm really proud of my sister Janie. Many of you know her. She was uh, struggling with addiction for many, many years. Many years. She found faith. She's gotten sober. She's gotten baptized. She's a part of our church now. She's doing awesome. She's going to tell her story one day. She asked if she could tell her story at some point to the church. You said, absolutely. Because she's learned that her story, her testimony, it is her testimony. The damage is her story. The damage is your story. And people need to hear that story. So then the the disciples go indoors with Jesus, and they want to know, why did we fail? What went wrong, Jesus? And here's where we get to the first point, and really the point of the story. They failed because they lacked faith. Jesus said, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, I'm going to pause, because if you've read the Bible regularly like I have, or you're familiar with these stories, we kind of read these things sometimes, and the wording seems weird to us, and so we, we, we pour more into it than it's really there. Like we go, oh, okay, so this kind, so maybe there's kinds of demons out there. And if we, if we figure out the right way to approach this, we can figure out this it's like a puzzle. You know, if we put it all together, then we can fix this problem. And we tend to fall into those weird ways of thinking, partly because we don't understand the language. And, and it, the way it's written in English, it just kind of comes out awkward. But remember, this is, this is a 2,000-year-old text that was translated from Aramaic into Greek into English, you know, it has, there's, a, there's, there's some issues with translation that we have to accept. And just like if you translate Spanish into English and you do it, you know, on a, it, the sentence comes out funny, right? So you have to kind of rearrange it to understand the sentence. It's very similar. And I think that's what's happening here. I don't think there's any special magical formula Jesus is trying to tell these guys, well, this kind, you know, you have to dance around three times and sprinkle fairy dust. Like, that's not what Jesus is telling them. What he's telling them is you failed to pray. Knuckleheads. Imagine that. The disciples. Jesus had been gone for just a few hours up on the Mount Hermon and his nine disciples who had been with him for two and a half years had already forgotten that he wanted ice cream. Not eggs and bacon. They forgot To pray. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. They didn't approach it in faith. What is prayer? You know, what is faith really when we think about it? It's it's bringing our needs, our wants, our desires, other people's needs, wants, and desires. It's bringing things to God. That's what it is. Because it's from God that the power flows. The disciples may have gotten a big head. Jesus had given them the gift of healing. And they even had the gift of driving out demons. And somewhere along the line, they got confused and thought they could do it. And so they tried to do it, and they forgot to ask God to do it. But the power comes from God through the disciples. Just like the power comes from God through us. And so at the end of the day, the whole point of my message today, and I'm wrapping it up right now, we're going to end with this. Don't forget, people need God. You need God. I need God. They need God. That's it. That's the whole story. Right in a nutshell. And the disciples, like the old man and the old woman, forgot And so Jesus was simply saying, next time pray, next time ask God, because I'm the one that does the healing. I'm the one that the power comes from. People need me. I want to invite you back next Sunday, 10.30 a.m. We're going to worship here once again. The grief recovery class I heard, the introduction class went great. There were 12 people interested. We are going to start the class officially next Sunday, 8.30, in the room next door. It's going to run for eight weeks. I really encourage you to sign up if you haven't already or, or to make sure you're a part of it. Thank you very much for being with us today. Let's stand on up, and I'm going to close out with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful to be together and it's so good to pray to you because we need you and uh, the world around us needs you and help us never, ever to forget that, Father. Thank you for the call and the passage. Thank you for the story and the life of Jesus and the example that he is and help every one of us to find it in our hearts, to be faithful, to be compassionate and never, ever, ever forget that we all need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.